Okay, uh, the question was on Lamour precession, a particle with spin and magnetic moment that is placed in a magnetic field will process about the field at the Lamour frequency. The frequency is proportional to the magnetic field. Uh, student questions. In the Lamour precession, Griffith says the angle of precession alpha is fixed, but I don't see where it came from in the calculations. So it was an input, it was an initial condition that was chosen in the wave function at angle alpha. So it went like this, based on where the initial alpha was. I wasn't sure if Lamour precession and Lamour frequency only applies to particles or can it apply to entire atoms in an external magnetic field? So anything that has a magnetic moment, which atoms can certainly have, uh, you can apply it to. Just want to double check that when a particle has a spin, it will not change it because it is fixed. So if the particle is plus half spin, it cannot change to minus half. So that's not quite what it means by being fixed. What it means is the magnitude is fixed. So electrons are all spin half, but they can e either be plus a half or minus half C component. And any other particle with spin, the magnitude of the spin is fixed. And then how much of it is aligned with the Z axis depends on the particular state. Uh, the fact that S plus and S minus are not observables confuses me. I thought we could measure those. So S plus and S minus are raising and lowering operators. They're not Hermitian matrices, so they couldn't be observables. Observables have to be Hermitian operators. The most confusing part of this section was on page 191, where Griffiths asserts that the Hamiltonian of the spinning charge particle is just a classical one. I thought it was a bit weird that there wouldn't be any changes as there are for the momentum operator. So the change is that the magnetic moment is proportional to the spin, and the spin is an operator. So it's not exactly, it looks like the classical Hamiltonian, just like the kinetic term in the Schrodinger equation looks like the classical kinetic energy if you write it in terms of P, but P is an operator now. Uh, I know this has already been referenced at least a few times in class, but I still have trouble with understanding the exact nature of the electron. It is a fundamental particle with wave-like and particle-like properties and has no internal structure, but is also spinning. How does something with no internal structure spin? And if the electron acts like a wave, which means its position must be diffuse, why does it spin so uniformly throughout the space it occupies? Why does each electron have spin a half or minus a half? Why is everything so symmetrical? So there's a lot of whys in that question. So you know the answer is that I can't answer whys. I answer hows. So if you could answer these questions, I, I would nominate you for the Nobel Prize. We don't understand what spin is really. We just know that we can measure it. And it satisfies the eigenvalues that we get from those measurements look like they come from these Halley matrices for electrons. They base the angular momentum quantum commutation relations. So, I mean, people didn't come up with spin. They found it in nature and then they came up with a mathematical framework that allowed them to do calculations. So, I don't know why there's spin. Because it behaves like an angular momentum. The operators satisfy those angular momentum commutators, just like orbital angular momentum. Uh, 
Oh, I don't. On page 185, I don't get how one quantum number m can be applicable to two separate quantum states. So m is an eigenvalue. You get it from a measurement or a, an operator acting on a state. So you can, if you have two separate states, you can act on those states separately with the operator, and you'll get eigenvalues for each state. Is it possible to have spins of other fractions, such as one quarter or two fifths? So we proved last time that because we have these angular momentum raising operators, we have to go up integer steps. That means there's a finite number of steps on the ladder. That means L had to be n over 2, so it's integer or half integer. Since spins obey the same commutation relations, the same proof goes through that the spin has to be integer or half integer. Question. Yeah. Is there anything other than spin 1 half and spin 1? Uh, there should be. I was going to get to that later, but gravitons are believed to have spin two. And also, if you have composite particles, you can easily, like if you have a bunch of quarks, you can easily make something that's spin three halves. And if you can't resolve the structure, uh, it's really three spin half particles with their spins lined up. But if you can't probe inside the particle, it would look like a particle with spin three halves. So maybe electrons are bound states of something that we can't resolve, and that's why they have spin. We don't know. Klebsch-Gordon coefficients, it's not clear to me how to obtain them from their calculations and their exact meaning. How do they work with group theory? So the Klebsch-Gordon coefficients are just a little piece of group theory, and it happened that some physicists worked it out first, so they got their name on it. But uh, we're going to go through a lot of calculations where we add angular momentum. And if you only learn one thing in this course, it better be how to add angular momentum. Because it's going to be on the midterm and it's going to be on the final. So, and it's the basic, one of the basic things about quantum mechanics. So it's something you need to learn if you want to go to grad school. So we're going to derive lots of Klebsch-Gordon coefficients. You will understand eventually. I think I understand mathematically why both half-integer and whole-integer values of spin are allowed, but I don't understand why only half-integer particles compose matter and why whole-integer particles mediate forces. What is the cause of the distinction? Um, actually, I thought I deleted this because this is one of our winning quantum questions, basically. So we're going to get to that. Uh, the example on Lamore precession is confusing when I compare it to an online reference classically the dipole lines up with the field and zero precession is the lowest energy configuration. But quantum mechanically we know we can't determine all three components of the spin. So if we knew it was lined up in one direction then we'd know all three components by just measuring one. So that can't happen quantum mechanically. So even classically if it starts out at an angle it will precess. And this precession is an example of Ehrenfest's theorem, which you must have taken last quarter. It's in the index like six or seven times, all through the first three chapters. So Ehrenfest showed that expectation values follow classical laws. So it's not too surprising that if you look at expectation values of the spin, they act like a classical precession. You should expect that expectation values behave like classical things. Okay, the winning questions. Hey, it wasn't formatted like that on my other computer. 
Uh, with 14 votes, the number one question is, how does a quantum computer work and what is the current progress on it? Uh, number two, with 11 votes, which is actually the same as this one with 10 votes, why are quantum mechanics and general relativity considered to be incompatible and in how are physicists trying to solve this problem? Uh, so, I'm counting these as one question, since they're the same question. Also with 10 votes, how does quantum teleportation work? Is it controllable or is it random? How can we use it? What does it apply for future physics? Nine votes. I've heard that when a particle is taking a path through space, it is actually taking all paths simultaneously. My question is, how is this possible? And can we see some of the calculations done using this concept? And also with nine votes, well, I think this one had seven votes. I didn't change it. Seven votes. Why are only only fermions subject to the Pauli exclusion principle and not bosons. Is there some deeper physical principle or is it just another axi axiom of quantum mechanics? So, by the end of the quarter, I have to come up with answers for all these somehow. Good luck to me. So are there any, any more questions before we start? So, we did angular momentum last time, and now we're going to do spin. It's all the same thing, except spin can be half integer sometimes. So we have some operator vector that represents a spin, some intrinsic angular momentum. Because it's an angular momentum, it satisfies the same commutation relations as ordinary angular momentum. Uh, IH bar. So the commutator of SX with SY gives IH bar SZ. SY with SZ gives IH bar SX. And SZ with SX gives IH bar SY. So the way you can remember it is that it's cyclic. So it's 1, 2, 3, 2, 3, 1, 3, 1, 2. And just like ordinary angular momentum, since they don't commute, we can only measure two things, which is the vector squared and one of its components. And we always choose the z-axis. So we can label the states of spin by two quantum numbers. And instead of L, we'll call it S, very imaginative to suggest spin. And we'll call the Z component M because we're not very imaginative. And sometimes we'll get confused about which M is which. So those eigenvalues, just like we're just, all we're doing is changing L to S. So it's S times S plus 1. If we measure the z component, we'll get h bar times m. And on your next problem set, I hope I put this question. I think I put this question on the next problem set. Um, you're going to show that raising and lower, find the eigenvalues, not the eigenvalues, you're going to find 
what the, we said that the raising and lowering operators change the value of m. So it changes one eigenstate to another eigenstate. But when it, you do that operation, you get some coefficient out front. So in that problem, you're going to calculate that coefficient. And I'm going to tell you the answer. It's the square root of h bar times the square root of s times s plus 1 minus m times m plus or minus 1. And then that changes m by one, one unit. And if it, this had been l plus or minus, then it would have been little l inside the square root instead of s. So s plus and minus are just what you think. They're the same thing. Change l to s. So it's sx plus or minus i, sy. And just like l can take on positive integer values, s can be 0. It can also be half integer. So we have 0, a half, 1, 3 halves, 2, and on and on. And then m can go from minus s through integer steps up to plus s. So some examples. So the best examples are spin half because that's everything that you see around you is made out of spin half particles. Electrons, quarks, which make up protons and neutrons. Neutrinos, which you don't actually see, but there's hundreds of them flying through you every second. Spin one, photon. That's actually what you're seeing when you think you're seeing something. Spin two. We hope that there's a graviton. Well, some people hope there's a graviton. We know there's gravity. We know there's quantum mechanics. If you try to quantize gravity, you end up finding that the quantum of gravity should be spin two, just in this, using the same reasoning that tells you that the photon should be spin one. But no one's ever detected a graviton. No one's ever <coughs> detected gravitational wave directly. Indirectly, we've seen gravitational waves, but not individual gravitons. So the current theory suggests gravitons are spin 2 and exist, but we don't know for sure. And spin 0, people have found lots of bound states of quarks that have spin 0, but those aren't really fundamental because they're made out of quarks. Quarks are fundamental, we think. But the Higgs boson that people are looking for at the LHC, if it exists, is supposed to be a fundamental spin zero particle. And it would be the first fundamental spin zero particle if they find it. Yeah? The only the only one in the standard model. But you know, really I don't think it exists. Well, I mean, there was a, <coughs> Victor Weiskopf did a calculation in 1930-something where he showed for mathematical consistency, it doesn't really make sense to have spin zero particles. It makes sense to have spin half and spin one, 
So he said, this is probably why we've never found a fundamental spin zero particle. And now it's uh, you know, 80 years later, and we still haven't found a fundamental spin zero particle. So I think his calculation was right. Yeah? What was his name again? Victor Weiskopf. He was uh, the first director general of CERN later on. Okay. So point particles have these spins. Point meaning that we can't resolve any structure, meaning we don't actually understand what spin is, except that when we measure angular momentum, we find that these particles behave like they have some intrinsic angular momentum, like they were little spinning tops. But since, as far as we can tell, they're point-like, they're not really little spinning tops. So we're just going to accept that uh, particles can spin even though they don't seem to have any structure because we can measure their spins. And we know there's no YLMs for half-integer things. So it's not made out of YLMs, whatever it is. So it turns out that the integer spins are called bosons. And the half integer guys are called fermions. And we're going to come back to that later. But uh, just heads up. Integer spin and half integer spin guys are very different. It makes a big difference whether you're a half or one. So we're going to start with spin half. That means we have two possible eigenstates. We have s a half, m a half, which we can also write as just spin up, or you can also write it as plus, like they do in the spin software. And there's a state a half minus a half. So s is still a half, but m can be minus a half. That's spin down. <coughs> so we saw in the first lecture that you can, since this is a two-state, there's only two possible eigenstates. We can represent it, everything in terms of two-component vectors and two-by-two two matrices. So we can write a spinner, which is just a two-component vector. That's the same as saying that we have a spin up guy with coefficient a and a spin down guy with coefficient b, which is the same as that. Whichever notation strikes your fancy, feel free to use. So these eigenstates spin up. Spin up is 1 in the top component and 0 in the bottom component. Spin down is 0 in the top component, 1 in the bottom. So if we measure spin squared on spin up, we know that the eigenvalue is s times s plus 1. So it's a half times a half plus one. Acting on the state, 
So half times half plus one is a half times three halves is three quarters. So we get three quarters h bar squared. And you can check, well, there's no check involved. Same thing, you get the same eigenvalue for spin down. Because it only depends on s, not on m. So now we know the eigenvalues of this operator on a complete basis. The basis is just these two vectors. So in this basis, it's diagonal. And the eigenvalues are the same. So it's this very simple matrix, the identity matrix times the eigenvalue. okay with that? So what about SZ? The Z component of the spin. So we know the eigenvalues are H bar over 2 for spin up and minus H bar over 2 for spin down. So again, we know the eigenvalues over the basis. So we can write the matrix that represents that. We factor out an h bar over 2. It's a matrix 1, 0, 0, minus 1. And uh, what about raising and lowering operators? So if I raise the spin down, I'll actually get h bar times the spin up. And to see that, we'd have to plug into this formula. Just inconveniently on the last page. So there's the h bar. S is a half. So we get half times three halves is three quarters. And then m was minus a half because it was spin down. So that's plus a half times a half plus one because it's the raising. So a half times uh, oh, it's minus a half because it was spin down. Plus one gives us a half. So this is second term's a quarter. This is three quarters. Three quarters plus a quarter is one. And when we do the lowering operator, start with m is a half, but then it's a half minus 1. So again, we get a quarter. So in both cases, the square root just gives us 1. So the lowering operator acting on spin up gives us h bar times spin down. What happens if we do the raising operator on spin up? What? Yeah. For spin up and we try to raise the spin, we get zero because it's already the biggest it can be. If we try to lower spin down, we also get zero. 
So now there's no eigenvalues, but we know what happens when it acts on uh, any each of these acts on our basis states. So we can write down those matrices too. So the raising operator takes the bottom guy, raises it to the top, and gives you zero for the bottom component. The lowering operator gives you zero on top, and if there was a top component, it lowers it. So you can see that these matrices that represent these operators are not Hermitian. That's why they don't have eigenvalues. Now we said that S plus minus is SX plus or minus ISY. So we can invert that and write SX and SY in terms of S plus and S minus. So SX must be S plus plus S minus. Because this one is SX plus I. SY. This one is SX minus IY, so the SYs cancel. We get two SXs and we divide by two. And then similarly, if we divide by two I, put a minus sign in the middle, then we'll cancel the SXs and pick out the SYs. It's hard to talk and write at the same time for me. Yeah? Um, yeah, so they can't be observables. What it so now we have, we know what S plus and minus are in terms of matrices, so now we know what SX and SY are in terms of matrices. Uh, this combination, so we'll get h bar over 2, we'll get a minus i up here from that, and a plus i down there. So now these guys are Hermitian, so they really are observables, they have real eigenvalues, and that confirms what I claimed without proof in the first lecture that we can write the spin operator in terms of the Pauli matrices. come up all the time even when you're not doing spin. Whenever you'll, when you get to group theory you're going to take SU2 group groups. These are the generators of SU2. SU2 happens whenever you have two things that you can interchange. Just like you can rotate spin up to spin down. Whenever you have two quantum mechanical things that 
have some symmetry relation, you'll get an SU2, and then these matrices will appear. So basically all the time. So let's take an arbitrary state. It's got A times spin up plus B times spin down. If we measure the Z component of that state, we have a probability mod A squared to get plus H bar over 2 in the measurement, and probability mod B squared to get minus H bar over 2. And now if we properly normalized our state, A squared plus B squared modulus equals 1. That means the probability that something happens is 1, which is a basic property that you knew before you took quantum mechanics. Probabilities for all possible events have to add up to 1, because something happens every time, at every moment. take a class on quantum field theory, there's some theories that predict that the probabilities don't add up to 1. Those theories are called wrong. <laughs> so what we, it's easy to see what happens when we measure SZ. So what about SX? Uh, the X component must have some eigenvalues too since it's an observable. So that would mean that SX acting on some spinner gives us some eigenvalue lambda, which I can rewrite as SX minus that eigenvalue times the spinner equals zero. So that means the determinant of this matrix, SX minus lambda, has to be zero. So since we know what that matrix is, let's write it down. We have minus lambda down the diagonal because it's secretly multiplying the identity matrix. Sx has h bar over 2 on the off diagonals. We take the determinant and get to minus lambda times minus lambda is lambda squared. Then we have minus h bar squared over 4 has to equal zero. So lambda equals plus or minus h bar over two. Has the same eigenvalues as SZ. That sounds good because we just picked Z randomly. So how could X be any different from Z? It's just an arbitrary choice. They must be the same, same eigenvalues. Once we know the eigenvalues, we can find the eigenvectors or eigenspinners. There's our matrix. Here's some arbitrary two-component spinner. The eigenvalues are plus or minus h bar over 2. And they're supposed to be eigenspinners, so we should get the same guy back again. So this just says that these vectors have eigenvalues plus or minus h bar over 2. And so acting here will bring the beta up and the alpha down, and divide by the h-bar over 2, 
So beta alpha has to be plus or minus alpha beta. So the solution is that beta equals plus or minus alpha. And then we could normalize it. So if we want spin up in the x direction, which in the spin software is called plus x, that's 1 over root 2, 1 over root 2, and spin down in the x direction, it's 1 over root 2 minus 1 over root 2. And you can check, like we did in the first lecture, that when you hit these guys with this matrix, this guy has the plus eigenvalue, this guy has the minus eigenvalue. That's how we know which, which one is which. So I had this general spinner, AB. We can rewrite that in this other basis. So this AB is in the basis where I'm choosing plus or minus spin a half in the z direction. But I could just as well choose plus or minus spin a half in the x direction. So that will be some coefficient times spin up in the x direction and coefficient times spin down in the x direction. And how did I know what these coefficients are? Since I know what these guys are, if I plug in here, in the upper component, the A's will add and the B's will cancel. So I'll get uh, 2 over root 2 root 2 times A. So I get back A. And then for the B's, the B's add because of this minus sign and the A's cancel. So if I measure spin in the x direction, this tells me the probabilities are 1 half modulus of a plus b squared. We're getting plus h bar over 2. Probability a minus b modulus squared for getting minus h bar over 2. So do these add up to 1? Uh, so we have this mess. see that that's equal to 1. Uh, so a trick for doing this, we'll write b is some real constant times e to the i theta times a. That's completely general. Then if we calculate a plus b, 
that's a times 1 plus c e to the i theta and a minus b is a times 1 minus c e to the i theta so mod of uh, a plus b squared take this times its complex conjugate so we get mod a squared so, and then we have to multiply this by its complex conjugate so we'll get 1 uh, plus c e to, e to the minus i theta plus c e to the i theta plus c squared For a minus b squared, we'll get the same thing, but now the c gets multiplied by minus. Now, if we add up the whole thing, get this will add to that we'll get two this cancels that this cancels that and we'll get a c squared twice from there and that's the same as a squared plus mod b squared which if we normalized it to start with is 1, so we get 2, which explains these halves here. So probability is still conserved. experiment. To do that, we remind ourselves how the Lamour precession works. So if we have a uniform magnetic field in the z direction, we have some magnetic moment that's proportional to the spin. And experiment tells us that that factor is minus e over, two, e over the mass, the charge of the electron over the mass of the electron, approximately. There's a tiny correction that you'll learn how to calculate in graduate school. So the Hamiltonian for the system is minus the magnetic moment dotted into the magnetic field. And because we've cleverly chosen the magnetic field along the z direction, we just pick up the spin in the z in the direction. And since that's a 2 by 2 matrix, we can just write it like this, where we uh, absorb the gamma b naught into this omega. So once we have the Hamiltonian, we can write down the time-dependent Schrodinger equation. And we solved that in the first lecture. We can solve it again. You differentiate this and bring down omegas over 2. 
and minus correspond to these pluses and minuses in the over 2. So it's essentially just e to the i energy times time in this factor and this factor. But they have different factors because they have different energies. If the spin is aligned with the magnetic field or anti-aligned, they have the opposite sign. Now, if we calculate the expectation value of the spin in the z direction, what do we do? We take the bra <coughs> times the operator times the ket, which means bra is the wave function complex conjugated. Here's the operator, and then it's still multiplying on the right, but I ran out of room. The eigenstate that I just had. So we just have to multiply this matrix times this. So all it does is give us a relative minus sign here. And then we take this row vector dotted into this column vector with the extra minus sign. So we get cos squared minus sine squared. And because this was the complex conjugate of that guy, these complex factors cancel. And then <coughs> this is an identity that uh, look up on Google or in your textbook. Cos alpha. You can do the same thing with the spin in the x direction. The only difference is we have a different operator sandwiched in the middle. So now it's going to bring the sine up to the top and the cosine down to the bottom. So we'll get cosine sines. Now the exponentials don't cancel out because this guy with the opposite sign to that got moved to the bottom. So it adds. So we get e to the i omega t and e to the minus i omega t. And with more fancy mathematics, you recognize this as cosine omega t. And finally, we can calculate the expectation value of the spin in the y direction. So it's just changing the operator in the middle. So uh, the only thing that's changing is that now we have i's and an extra minus sign. So because of that extra minus sign, we get a sine instead of a cosine omega t. So there are the expectation values that we calculated. And now it behaves like a classical Procession, which is what Aaron Fest's theorem told us was going to happen. So, alpha is the angle between the spin and the magnetic field, and it's rotating around that guy. So, here's the rotation. So, there's some angle phi, which is uh, minus omega t, so that means it's going the opposite way as it rotates. So now we can redo Stern-Gerlach now that we know everything about spin. So remember what happened was they sent silver atoms through an inhomogeneous magnetic field that split into two beams. So the mag looking down along the beam line, 
one of the magnets has some crazy shape. It has a crazy shape so that you get some non-uniform magnetic field. So there's a gradient of the magnetic field in the vertical direction. So our Hamiltonian is still the same thing. The only thing we've changed is that we put in this gradient so it's not uniform. Magnetic field changes as you go vertically. So if we imagine that we're riding with the silver atom, what do we see? So before we get to the magnetic field, there's no energy associated with the magnetic field because it's not there. Once we get inside the magnetic field, we see that our energy is shifted by overall uh, uniform background and a gradient along the z direction. And we sit inside the magnetic field for some time because what we're seeing is the magnetic field magnet is shooting, being shot at us. So as it's passing by, we're inside the magnetic field for some time. And then after it goes by, there's no magnetic field again. So we start out in some initial state. There's some amplitude A to B to spin up, amplitude B to be spin down. And we're just sitting in that state until we get to time T0, T equals 0, where we're inside the magnetic field. Then when we're inside the magnetic field, we start to process. So we plug in our solution to the Schrodinger equation. The only trick now is that there's an extra piece in the energy, which appears in the e to the i omega t, or e to the i energy times time, and the gradient. So the energy depends on how high we are up in z. And then the opposite sign for this guy, because that's the spin down. Then at the end, after we've finished going through magnetic field, we'll stop processing. So we'll just be stuck at whatever time that was here. But now you see that we're in some eigenstate that has momentum in the z direction. So if I take a derivative with respect to z, I get some non-zero answer. Whereas in the initial state, there was no momentum in the z direction because there was no z dependence in the wave function. And the momentum in the z direction is different depending on whether I was spin up or spin down. So spin ups go one way, spin downs go the other way. So that's the quantum explanation of what you classically think of as a force on the dipole. It's that the wave functions inside the magnetic field have different energies depending on the gradient of the magnetic field. So depending on whether they're spin up or down, they prefer to be move up or down in the magnetic field to minimize their energy. And that ends up giving them some z dependence in their wave function. So there are any questions about Stern-Gerlach? The only mystery left is why we think that this has anything to do with an electron, because this is a neutral silver atom, which has a lot of electrons in it. But we'll, ha we'll solve all the atomic structure in the periodic table, and then we'll see why. Oh, so we have two minutes to add angular momentum. I don't know if we can do it in two minutes.
So now's a good time to ask a question. Pardon me? Yeah, if you just sent through a single electron, it would have a charge and there would be a Lorentz force. So it would mess up the whole thing. So which is why it was lucky that they were playing with silver, because they were trying to test Bohr's theory, which is actually wrong, but predicted something like this would happen. So there's a bit of luck. So they won the Nobel Prize for this, for testing. You know, they did this experiment. The experiment is correct. They interpreted it incorrectly. But that, that doesn't matter. They still get the Nobel Prize, because they <laughs> discovered spin in the end. At the time, <laughs> no, not at the time. At the time, they thought they'd confirmed Bohr's theory. Because no one had ever heard of spin before. I mean, they discovered a new fundamental proper property of matter that no one could have imagined before this experiment. Yeah? Uh, but what was the experiment? The experiment was uh, in the 20s, I think. I mean, it was before proper quantum mechanics. Uh, I think there's a link on the web page to the history of Stern Gerlach. You can check there. Okay, I've managed to stall for those two minutes. Have a good weekend. <laughs> Did you ever get my responses for those reading questions that I had? Uh, I did. I said it in the box again. Um, let me check if I have a web access here. They're all each question is equal. I hand in what you've got now. And don't bother, like, if it's just, just one question, well, you should still try to do it. Of course I will. Bring it, drop it, put it under my door. Yeah.